Welcome to UCI Law Talks. I'm Austin Parrish. This episode was recorded with Dan Burke on January 17, 2024. Sadly, less than three weeks later, on February 4th, Dan passed away. Dan had been battling cancer, and before we recorded this podcast episode, Dan told me that his prognosis was not what he had hoped. Although he was in good spirits, he approached death much as he approached life, in a very open, clear, and direct way. As you'll hear in this episode, and as profoundly poignant as it is, Dan spoke warmly about his 15 years in Irvine, the wonderful colleagues of his at UCI, his career, and the early days of founding of UCI Law. He was delighted about the upcoming February 9th UCI Law event celebrating his life's work. In this last recorded conversation with Dan, these were his final words for us, and I quote, take some risks, but never risk quality. You might want to choose a topic that's a little offbeat. You might want to work in an environment that's a little bit different, but always do quality luring. You always do quality scholarship. And that's not something that I'm willing to take a risk with, and I don't think others should either. His passing was a tremendous loss to our community. He will be missed. I hope you enjoy this episode with Dan Burke. Rest in peace, Dan. Welcome to UCI Law Talks from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. For all our latest news, follow UCI Law on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Well, thank you for joining us on today's podcast. My name is Austin Parrish. I'm the Dean and the Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. This is UCI Law Talks, the podcast where you learn more about the amazing anteater community that is UCI Law. Today, we're doing a special podcast connected with the law school's celebration of the 15th anniversary of the law school's founding. Today, I'm very fortunate to be joined by Professor Dan Burke. Dan is a distinguished and Chancellor's Professor of Law here at UC Irvine. An award-winning teacher and scholar, he is a founding member of our faculty and one of the nation's leading intellectual property scholars. He is globally recognized for his expertise on topics related to law and emerging technologies in the areas of patent, copyright, electronic commerce, and biotechnology law. He's taught intellectual property around the world, including the University of Toronto, Humboldt University, Bocconi University, Sins Po, University of Lucerne, and the University of Haifa, among others. Hey, Dan, so great to have you join us for this episode of UCI Law Talks. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Dan, one of the purposes of the podcast is to enable law students and the community to get a glimpse into the legal profession and the varied ways that law graduates use their law degrees. Can you take us back and get us started? When you were in law school, did you know you wanted to become a law professor? So, Austin, no, I, I didn't know I was going to be a law professor. In fact, I I had no intention of being a lawyer originally. I was in science. I was in a, a PhD in molecular biology program, and um, I wasn't really very good at it. Experimental science is kind of like cooking. It's kind of like being a chef. You know, there's some people, they go in the kitchen, and their souffle always rises, and their meringue is perfect, and, um, and, and that wasn't me. My souffles would fall. I would have to repeat an experiment three or four times to get coherent results. So I said, all right, this, this is not working. What else could I do uh, with this graduate degree in science? And I was at Northwestern uh, in Chicago, and I opened up the, uh, the newspaper. We still had paper newspapers at that time, uh, the uh, Chicago Tribune. And there was a story about the first criminal trial to convict someone using forensic DNA evidence. It's called DNA fingerprinting. And uh, it, it was a rape trial, and there, there was a conviction. 
and the uh, reporter talked to the jury, pulled the jury afterwards, and the foreman of the jury said, yes, we convicted on the DNA evidence. It's scientific. It's infallible. And I went, wait a minute. I've been doing that in my lab, <laughs> and I know for, for a fact it's not infallible. Uh, maybe these lawyers need a little bit of help here. And uh, if you know Northwestern, you know, the main campus is in Evanston, which is where I lived. But my laboratory was on the lakeshore, uh, the lakefront campus, which is the medical school and the law school. At the time, uh, the American Bar Foundation was was centered there. So I would take the L down every day to my lab. And you, you meet the same people. There's kind of the same commuters. And I struck a conversation with a woman who worked at the American Bar Foundation. And she found out about, you know, my interests and she said, Oh, well, you might like this. And she pulled out something called Jurametrics, the Journal of Law, Science and Technology, which is the uh, publication of the ABA's science and technology section coming out of Arizona State University. And I said, okay, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, so off I went to law school and the plan was to find some way to use my science degree, uh, you know, to, to do criminal defense or patent law or something like that. And just to give you a sense, you know, at, at the time, you know, I interviewed for summer jobs or summer clerkships. Uh, one of the interviews I remember was with a great firm, Fenimore Craig, and I was interviewing with, a, with one of the partners and he says, so you're a scientist. I said, yeah, that's right. Uh, at least before I came to law school, he goes, what are you doing here? Why, why would you, why would you come to law? Why, and, and, and so I tried to explain this to him. My students don't get that question anymore. We have graduates of UCI with, PhDs in neuroscience and, and biology and, and everybody knows, you know, why they're there. But at the time, it was kind of a mystery. So I, I was just going to, you know, find a good area of practice. That's what I was going to do. But I discovered there's something about the legal profession, which is that you have a client, you know, and you have an ethical obligation to that client. You have a financial obligation because law is a business. And there are some things your client doesn't want you to say. Uh, there's some things your client would rather have you not talk about or it's adverse to their future interests or their position. So that's a, a little bit of an impediment in freely exploring policy and technology and so on. One place where that doesn't happen is here in the academy, right? My, my client right now, so to speak, is uh, the public, right? The taxpayers of California pay me to come up with the best analysis, the best policy prescriptions. Uh, the very best solutions I can come up with. Some of them might like it, some of them might not, uh, but that's what academic freedom is for. And, and so this is a place where you really have the most freedom imaginable to explore new solutions and new uh, ideas for society. And so I said, okay, that's where I need to be. And uh, so I you know, took a hard right turn, changed my CV and developed some different credentials and uh, moved towards the academy. But that was that was in no way part of the original plan. It was a complete surprise to everyone. Well, I have to say, I think we're fortunate the souffles were falling because you've had an amazing career. And, uh, you know, you're right when you say that. It, it strikes me at the time how people perceived it unusual for people with STEM backgrounds and how common it is now. In fact, I would say it may be one of the, one of the pathways to success is to have a STEM background and then to go into law these days. Uh, did you agree with that or am I, you, you know, this better than I do? No, I think you're absolutely correct. And, you know, sometimes we have a student who's surprised, right? You know, they'll be sort of STEM adverse and they look around, they go, well, where can I go? Oh, I can go to law school. And they show up here and then they discover, you know, well, you really want to do torts, medical malpractice or whatever. You're going to have to learn something about pharmaceuticals and medical standards and, and mechanical engineering. 
uh, particularly environmental law that's all about ecosystems and chemistry and biology. Uh, you want to go into intellectual property, you know, that's certainly very heavily uh, technology oriented. And occasionally we have a student who's kind of dismayed. You know, I, I came here to get away from math. Uh, and I said, well, first of all, you can't really get away from math in our society. Uh, and, and you definitely can't do it, uh, in law because, you know, yes, you'll have experts who will help you figure things out, but you've got to know enough to, uh, to be able to supervise your experts. We can help reorient, but the majority of students, I think, have figured this out, exactly what you said, which is, you know, a strong science and technology background creates so many opportunities. And a lot of them show up again and say, well, I'm, I'm going to do intellectual property. And I say, that's great. It's a great career. I love it. But don't overlook, you know, don't overlook environmental law. That's heavy on the science, too. Don't overlook uh, various types of, of tort practice. Uh, don't overlook criminal law, right? I mean, there are lots of places you can put this expertise to work. And, and I think we have students who do that. No, I think that's right. Well, you said you made this this hard turn and entered into academia. Looking back, can you give us a little bit of the highlights of your academic career? What what are the milestones that you're most proud of or things that stick out most in your memory once you made that decision to uh, to go the academic route? Well, so, uh, you know, my, my sense is that to be successful in anything, uh, whether it's business or politics or law is uh, you have to be willing to take some risks and you have to be willing to take the right risks, right? Um, again, just at the time I, I entered the academy, someone doing law and science was kind of odd. Now there are quite a number of schools that have programs devoted to that. But at the time, that was a little bit risky. And periodically, I, w- I would go beyond that. I mean, uh, you know, you sort of look for the opportunities uh, that are you know, high payoff opportunities, right? So to give you a concrete example, I believe I was the first, or if not the first, one of the first, to write about gender in the patent system. There was already a, a group that was kind of looking at gender and copyright and trademark, but nobody was really taking on patents. So I, I started working in that area. I got a lot of pushback. You know, people said, well, patents are just about, you know, they're totally neutral. They're about technology. They're about innovation. Uh, this is not like it's reproductive rights or family law or, or employment law where there's you know some kind of discrimination against women 10 15 years on that conversation has completely changed people have realized that there is a huge what we're calling gender gap in the patent system uh, there are very comparatively few um, patents issued to women and the same is true by the way of racial and ethnic minorities there aren't very many black inventors there aren't very many latino inventors uh, but, you know, for, for half the population, women do not engage in the patent system. Uh, there are relatively few female patent attorneys. And this has become a source of some alarm. The United States Patent Office has new programs and initiatives to try and correct that. The World Intellectual Property Organization is involved. Other overseas patent offices are involved. Small group of us completely changed that conversation and, uh, you know, had an impact which is what we would all like our scholarship to do, right? You know, you write it, you hope it makes the world a little bit better. Um, we're hoping that uh, the recognition that this problem now has is going to make things a little bit better. So, you know, that was risky and there was a little bit of a cost to it, but um, that's something that, that uh, I think has changed things. And so I've tried to look for those kinds of opportunities. That makes sense. And, I, you know, you can see that looking back. It's hard to see it in the moment about how those nuggets of ideas take on and people... And society changes and 
before you know it, uh, people are are seeing it the way you're seeing it. Are, are there other times like you've had such a rich uh, a rich body of scholarship with books and law review articles and and uh, essays and uh, I was reading through your CV as we were getting prepared for this interview and it's long. It's a long CV. <laughs> are, are, there, are there other places where you're particularly proud where you look back and you say, you know what, I made an impact there. I, I changed the conversation or. Uh, this was something that hadn't really been uh, thought of. And when you look back on sort of your highlights of, of your writings, which ones stand out to you? Well, so, uh, again, as you know, there are sort of different levels that uh, academics try to operate at. Um, the law and gender, patents and gender example uh, was kind of a policy level. You know, we'd like to change institutions and sort of change the social uh, dialogue in such a way to, to make things better. There are... Uh, Discussions within the law, you know, sort of, you know, very picky and specialized discussions that lawyers have. And I've had, I think, at least a couple of opportunities to really change the discussion among patent attorneys. Some of the work I've done with Mark Lemley at Stanford uh, on the question of can you tailor patent law? Can you uh, adapt patent law to uh, different industries? Because the whole idea is to promote innovation. But promoting innovation in software is not like promoting innovation in biotech, right? You know, software, you can come up with a pretty good product, a couple of, of teenagers in a basement. And, uh, you know, biotech, or things like pharmaceuticals, right? You're going to have to invest, uh, last I checked, about $200 million to get the thing to market because of the FDA approvals and the oversight that exists. So th- those are very different kinds of incentives that you would want to have. And we argued that patent law does that, that there are actually flexibilities or um, what we call policy levers that the courts in particular can alter and say, okay, uh, you know, without creating a special body of biotechnology law, we can shift the patent discussion in a way that it works for biotech. In a different case, we can shift it in a way that works for software or works for semiconductors. Again, that's something we got a lot of pushback on early on. They said, no, no, it's, it's, it's uniform. It's one system. Uh, we got one statute that applies the same to everybody. You know, again, uh, you know, 15 years on, I think that is uh, our thesis is commonly accepted. You know, yes, the courts can do this. The patent office can do this. They should do this. And, uh, the question maybe now is how they do this. So that's kind of a more of a, you know, more of a, a legalistic, uh, you know, doctrinal success that uh, that we had early on in the history of the internet you know again had both some policy and some doctrinal um, uh, successes uh, particularly thinking about uh, the problem of jurisdiction uh, once once you have this internet business so again you know th- those are the kinds of targets of opportunity that I'd look for and that's what I advise junior scholars to do so you know you've got to look around uh, you need to make a choice about where you're going to put your effort um, and uh, you know there's a Sort of an art to identifying, you know, yes, this is the, this is the spot where I can push a little bit and things will open up. You had established your research uh, reputation both nationally and globally long before you came to Irvine. Uh, we were only founded, uh, you know, it's our 15th year anniversary from the formal founding. You're a founding member of the school. You're one of the original cohort that started the law school and built it from scratch. What brought you to Irvine and what were those early days like? They were hard. It's a great question. So, um, you know, at the time I was teaching at the University of Minnesota, again, great school, fabulous colleagues, love the community. I was vaguely aware that there was a UC campus in Irvine. I hadn't really heard much about it. I was then vaguely aware that 
somebody named Erwin Chemerinsky had been hired to start a law school at this campus that I basically didn't know anything about. As with most news or community gossip, I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. Um, and then I got an email from Erwin Chemerinsky who said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm recruiting for this new law school. I'm trying to found a new faculty. And, uh, you know, this, this campus has been working for 20 or 25 years to get a law school. Uh, California, the, the regents, the legislature finally signed off on that. He said, but from, from the very earliest discussions, intellectual property was supposed to be a, a major component. So if, if you look back at the, at the plans for the campus, you know, when, when the campus was founded, there's actually thought that says a law school. Um, and they had been talking even that long ago about, uh, about intellectual property. He said, so, so I hope you consider uh, joining us. And my initial reaction was, I'm perfectly happy where I am. Uh, not really interested in moving. But my spouse said, she goes, well, why don't you at least go out and take a look at it? You know, go meet the guy. Um, it's January in Minnesota. We can get a few days of sun, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, kind of look around. And I said, okay, fine. So I flew out. I met, I met, to, met Erwin Chemerinsky, you know, saw a little bit of the campus. And he said something that really struck home, um, during our conversation. He said, he said, come join us and we will build something that will outlast either you or me. And that kind of, that kind of struck me, right? Because as academics, we have our sort of preset goals. You know, you want to get tenure, you want to get promoted, you don't want to get a chair or whatever. But that opportunity doesn't happen very often, right? To, to found a new law school. And in particular, to found a law school at a really high functioning level. I mean, there were a number of law schools that were founded around that time, uh, a couple of which have since closed their doors. And usually the way you found a new law school is you, scrabble up some resources and kind of start at the bottom of the food chain. And then over the next 20 or 50 years, hope you can kind of claw your way up to more of a national reputation. But the plan here from day one was uh, we're not doing that. Uh, this is University of California. Uh, we want to start in the top tier. And that had never been done before. Uh, and that was, a, that was that was interesting. So I said, all right, well, this doesn't happen very often. Uh, it happens uh, this, this may be singular, right? It might never happen again. So let's, let's give it a whirl. And, uh, you know, as, as one of our former colleagues, Jennifer Chacon said, she said, she said, I don't think any of us realized quite how much work it was going to be. As I said, there were several law schools that were founded at about the same time, right around, right around the time. Uh, one of them being Drexel, uh, in Philadelphia, uh, a little bit before us. And the, the plan there at Drexel was everybody showed up on the same day. New faculty, new students, beginning of the semester, um, and I'm told by colleagues there, I wasn't there myself, but they said it was a complete pandemonium. Like nobody knew where the classrooms were. Nobody knew exactly what was supposed to, you know, where's the registrar? What, what do I do about this? And, and to their credit, the, you know, the, the leadership here at UCI, uh, Michael Drake, who of course now is the president of the system and, and, uh, Michael Godfordson, who was the provost at the time, they said, yeah, we don't need that. We don't need pandemonium. So they brought, about eight of us in ahead of time, a year ahead, and said, okay, your job is to figure out the curriculum, uh, recruit the first class of students, recruit the next batch of faculty, because as we gain students, we need more instructors, and uh, sort of get everything organized uh, when we open our doors next year. And we had five faculty meetings a week initially, because that, that's what we were here to do. And, uh, and I say to their credit, because, you know, understand that meant that they were Hiring staff, they were paying faculty salaries, uh, you know, they were uh, renovating, you know, putting a, a pretty good, uh, 
amount of resources into getting this going with no tuition income, right? Because there were no students yet to pay any tuition. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they felt like that was the right way to do it. And I think that was the right way to do it. Um, I think it would have been, uh, much less successful otherwise. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of work. A lot of it was education, sort of mutual education. We had to explain to the campus what law schools are, what they do. Um, we still have to do that occasionally. When I flew out to originally interview with Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, um, uh, I met with the um, vice provost for academic personnel, a guy named Herb Kalaki. Uh, literally the first words out of his mouth, you know, after, you know, welcome, come in, sit down, you know, in his office. Um, he was looking at some stuff on his desk and he looked up at me and he said, you really don't publish in peer reviewed journals? And I said, well, actually, I do sometimes publish in peer reviewed journals because I have this science thing. I'm kind of odd that way. But um, but it is certainly true that the majority of my publications are not in peer reviewed journals. Most of my colleagues don't publish in peer reviewed journals. And he said, but how, how can you have an academic unit that doesn't publish in peer reviewed journals? So, we, you know, we had that conversation about that peculiarity of of uh, the legal academy and many, many others over the, over the years trying to educate the campus uh, how we do things. And they're trying to educate us as to what their expectations are and how they would like to do things. That's been an ongoing conversation. But uh, in the early years, that was a very intense conversation to try and, you know, sort of figure each other out. Well, but, the, you know, as you say, the vision, though, was right. Like I, I saw a statistic that I think there's been it's a little more than this, but at least 25 law schools created in the last 30 years. And uh, there's only one that's been highly ranked or highly considered out of that. And only one other that's actually even made it into, let's say, the top half of law schools uh, in, in the nation. And so that vision was extraordinary. Um, yeah. yeah, I think I can't imagine telling faculty that we need to have five uh, faculty meetings a week. That would <laughs> that would that would not be uh, well received these days. Looking from, you know, looking back at that history, it was really remarkable. C can you emphasize a couple of things that you think were distinct um, about UCI law in the way that education was conceived, that the way that education was going to be taught that that sort of still is part of the DNA and still makes the place special compared to many law schools uh, in, in the United States. Well, one of the things that Irwin would say pretty frequently, which which I think he was absolutely correct on, was he said, we need to be innovative enough to justify a new law school without being so innovative that employers are scared away from our students. Because, you know, there have been a number of attempts to reform legal education uh, you know, good example, uh, at, at CUNY New York, right? Where they decided that they were going to get rid of grades because grades don't really reflect the person. And, and those of us who give grades know that that's often very true. Um, and so, um, instead, the instructors, the faculty were, um, to write a short paragraph about how each student performed in the class, um, which would be more reflective of, of the strengths and weaknesses of the student rather than this kind of you know, canned label that you put on them. Partners at law firms hate that. They, they do not want to read a paragraph. You know, you walk in, they say, okay, well, did she get an A or did she get a B? I mean, uh, that, I, that's all I have time for. I don't have time to read a paragraph about every, every one of your students. But again, it, you know, being innovative enough to justify a new law school, but not setting the apple cart so that our students would, would suffer uh, because of that. We, we considered whether we could uh, get rid of grades to the extent that, you know, Yale and Stanford have just have pass-fail honors, we decided that as a new school, we had to give more information 
two employers than that. So, you know, so we, we used a more traditional, more traditional grading scale. But one of the first things that we did in uh, these five faculty meetings a week, uh, was we sat down and we said, okay, you know, there's a pretty standard curriculum for the American law school first year. You know, you're going to take constitutional law. You're going to take criminal law. You're going to take torts. Why do we do that? The conclusion we came to is that each of those topics introduces a different type of analysis or a different approach to social questions, to legal problems. Right? Interpreting a statute is one way you can do things. Creating common law is another way you can do things. And so we said, well, why don't we just, why don't, why don't we go with that? I mean, that, and so we, we, we changed the names on some of our classes, which again confused employers a little bit. We had to, we had to do some backpedaling on that. But we said, okay, you know, this class is about statutory interpretation. That's a skill lawyers need to have. Uh, that's a way of analyzing the law, uh, which is quite different than procedure, right? Lawyers think about procedure in ways uh, that nobody else in the world does. It's what, what drives people crazy about lawyers. Um, uh, but, you know, that is a distinct way of, of looking at things. And coming from a completely different set of disciplines, from biochemistry, molecular biology, I can tell you that there is something called thinking like a lawyer. People make fun of that, um, but, you know, but it, it is a discipline and it is a particular way of thinking about and solving problems. Um, uh, you know, I, I taught at Stanford for a little while in the first year, legal writing and, and for me, criminal law. And there were about five of us uh, in that fellowship. Each of us would get our own constituency of troubled first-year students. You know, the uh, students of color would go to my African-American colleague uh, in the office to my right. Uh, the LGBTQ students would go to the uh, colleague on my, uh, you know, on, on my left. Uh, I got the engineers. That was my minority uh, constituency, right? And, and they would come in and they would be really struggling because they would be thinking about law like an engineer. Uh, and they would analyze the problem and they would say, okay, this is the solution. And I would say, well, you know, the reason you didn't do so well in the exam is that that is a solution. Part of what your professor is looking for is if that solution doesn't work or your client doesn't like that solution, you know, what would be the next step or what would be the alternatives? In, in a sense, you're in, you're in a type of risk management, right? Once they figured that out, they did fine, right? But originally they wanted, you know, preferably a hard number. Engineers love tax because you can get some numbers. You know, we, we realize, you know, that that's what we're trying to teach in the first year. Each of those classes that we have uh, does it in a slightly different way. And uh, and so we tailored that curriculum to, to do that, which uh, I don't think had really been done before. I think a number of people have imitated it now. And, uh, and we made some other similar kinds of choices to, you know, address particular issues in legal education that um, we hoped were innovative, but again, that we hope didn't scare off. Uh, the entire practice community. And that makes sense. I, I've been struck, you know, this uh, sort of at the time, this this idea of teaching about the legal profession, the idea of having a strong experiential component, making sure that students were doing real live client interviews and uh, getting introduced to broad learning skills, this idea of being deeply connected to the community and learning through doing. Lots of schools have imitated it. The depth of how it was done here, even from the start, seems extraordinary. And, and then I've been struck about how much, you know, being part of an R1 research institution has sort of made a difference to the DNA. You know, the number of centers and institutes, and, and you've been involved in a lot of those too, to sort of connect the theory and to the practice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Some of the IP initiatives and the AI initiatives and the, and the institutes and centers that you've been involved with? So that, that was, that was something really very exciting to us when we arrived here, because as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, there was always some plan to have a law school at UCI. 
And this campus was lousy with JDs. They just weren't in a law school. They were in social ecology or they were in anthropology or they were somewhere else. Um, and, and part of what the leadership of the campus at the time wanted to do was to have a focal point uh, to pull all this talent together in a very interdisciplinary way uh, that you're talking about. So, you know, so we arrived on campus and we're having five faculty meetings a day or five faculty meetings a week trying to hire some new faculty and trying to recruit students. And we had people practically lined up because uh, they'd been waiting for five, ten years to collaborate. And, you know, and, and they came from economics and they came from psychology. And they said, you know, we've got this project. Can you, can you work with us on this project? Can you collaborate with us? And we said, we said, we'd love to maybe next year after we get some students, uh, you know, like, don't go away. Uh, we, we want, we want to work with you, but, uh, but we can't do it right away. Uh, so, I mean, so this campus was really ready to, to engage. So yes, I mean, in my particular area, um, I've had some fabulous interactions, particularly with something that most people might not recognize, which is informatics. There's a, there's a little cluster of social scientists. Uh, in the computer science school here. And they work on policy problems and they work on, you know, sort of technology problems. Uh, and, and they are amazing. And they're, they're some of the top people in, in the, in the United States, really in the world. I went to a conference in Copenhagen once and, um, the keynote speaker was a fabulous researcher named Mimi Ito. And she got up and started the keynote presentation, Dr. Mimi Ito from University of California, Irvine. I'm like, what? I didn't know she was on our campus. I mean, uh, so yeah, they are looking at the problems associated with AI. Uh, they've been looking at problems uh, sort of underlying AI, which in the vernacular is called algorithmic living. You know, how do humans interact with algorithms? And we've got some great social science on that, which the legal uh, academy and, and the legal profession and, and the policymakers in Washington are for some reason not not paying any attention to at all. You know, so sort of elevating that to a level where People think about, you know, hey, we've, we've actually got data about what's going to happen with AI, how people are going to interact with AI. That's a fabulous group. I've had uh, some great collaborations over in the business school. I've had some collaborations, obviously, in the in the wet sciences and molecular biology. And uh, uh, I think that's true of our faculty general. Any member of our faculty who wants to reach out, there's somebody on campus who wants to work with them. More often, they come to us because they have they have something going on. Uh, some type of project that's happening. You know, I've taught at a number of schools and the barriers here to cross-disciplinary collaboration, I think, are much lower than you would find at most universities. Usually there's no reward in your department for, you know, for working with those lawyers. Uh, why would you want to do that, right? But here I think it's actually encouraged campus level and, and certainly, uh, certainly that is, was one of our goals when we got here. Uh, founding the school was to have a very interdisciplinary uh, faculty to have that input and then to find a way to help students to put that to work, you know, actually in the practice, right? Otherwise, you know, it's a couple of pointy-headed academics talking in ivory tower, right? Uh, and I think we've been fairly successful at that, helping students say, okay, you know, this is what we know about, uh, you know, this particular social situation or this is what we know from criminology and let's use that in the clinic. Let's use that in the courtroom. I think you're right. I think that's distinctive, and I think we've been pretty successful with that. Yeah, in my sense, employers are looking for that, too. They want what you said earlier, you know, the, the basic skills of how to think like a lawyer. They want strong writers. They want critical thinkers. But the most challenging legal problems, they want that sort of thinking out of the box or that broader perspective. And so I think 
it's a value add. I, you know, you mentioned our students. Uh, if you told me that 20 years ago that Orange County was going to be sort of the hotbed for first generation students going to law school and sort of this is the place where you see the traditional American dream of people whose family had never gone to college and now they were in law school and then went on and became leaders in, in Southern California or beyond. I, I would have 20 years ago, I said, really? And, and it is stunning. I think last year we had 30% of our entering class were first gen students, but you've taught in a number of schools. You mentioned Stanford, you mentioned Minnesota. I think at the start of the interview, I listed a bunch of the international schools, the really top yeah. ones throughout the world. What do you think of our students? How do they compare? And, and uh, what do you think of them over the last, uh, well, I guess, you know, uh, 15 years since you've been here? So our, our, our students, our students are great. Um, uh, you know, in particular, in the early years, the faculty came here for the reason I said that I came here, which was, you know, this is something new. This is something exciting, chance to build something. And the students took the same risk, right? This was not a an accredited school. You know, we had to dangle a few carrots, but we got fabulous students who could have gone to Columbia or UCLA or really pretty much anywhere because they wanted to build something. If you look at those first graduating classes in particular, uh, you know, not only did they participate in building the, the institution, the law school, but they then took that out uh, into the community uh, and did some truly amazing things with it. I ran into one of our first students a few weeks back, uh, a guy named Sam Lamb, who uh, was a great student. He was Mr. Pro Bono. Right? He went out and he did just enormous amounts of volunteer uh, legal work. And I ran into him at a bar function a while back, and he said, oh, Professor Burke, it's great to see you. He goes, you know, I, I really wish I had taken patent law. He said, yeah, because I'm, I'm doing patent litigation now at Jones Day. And I said, well, you do have a degree in physics. I went and I looked him up, and, uh, you know, uh, he's there in the biography as a, as a patent litigator. Um, I'm sure he's, he's now moved on, right? He's now actually in-house at a, a computer gaming uh, opportunity. But, you know, I'm sure he was a great lawyer. I'm sure he's a great litigator. And then all over that, that biography page was all of the pro bono LGBTQ uh, you know, lambda, pink triangle, uh, work he was doing. The, the, and, and the firm was very proud of that. So, the, you know, litigation is paying, paying the bills and, and allowing him to go and really help underserved communities. And, um, and this is something I try to communicate. You want to change the world. That's great. You want to engage in public interest. That's great. You can do that in a lot of places, right? You know, you can certainly do it at a full-time public interest position if you can find one. There aren't that many. But, you know, if everybody who cares leaves, you know, the corporate and big law setting, then that just leaves the bad actors, right? And then things just get worse. We need you in places where you might not think about going because, again, those are those windows of opportunity where you can, you can push on something uh, and really change character of a law firm or the character of a practice community. The idea that business law and public interest law don't mix is something that uh, that I push back on quite a bit. Most of my students want to do, quote, business law, end quote. Right? They're going to do intellectual property of some sort. And I say, okay, you know, take that and run with it. What can you do uh, when you get there? Sort of implement this UCI value. We've talked about this before, but I so much agree with that. I think the best lawyers in the world are ones who are deeply committed, uh, connected to their communities in different ways. And so... Uh, I've been amazed about the alums I've met with of how much they've sort of been able to walk both uh, working at the very highest levels of the profession, whether that's in private practice or in government or public interest or or in corporations doing entrepreneurship, 
but still saying, staying deeply connected. And as you say, that could be volunteering, uh, serving on boards, working with local bar associations, working with local churches, working with nonprofits, with hospitals, but it's stunning. And I think that leads to a better lawyer, actually, and somebody who's going to bring in business for the largest firms and the largest companies. So it's a, I think it's a, it's sort of a way to do well by the community, but also do well by yourself on your career. Yeah. Well, Dan, I, you know, this is part of these, uh, our 15th year celebration. Before we end, I know in February, we're going to host a, a symposium to celebrate your work on the research side, your scholarly contributions over your career and uh, the impact of that work. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, that conference we're holding and, and who's going to join us? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, this has been largely. Uh, organized by our colleague Tony Reese, who is a copyright expert here uh, at UCI Law, uh, with some assistance from uh, uh, Mark Lemley up at Stanford. You know, as my British friends say, I'm, I'm really gobsmacked. They really have a an all-star lineup of people who are coming to talk about things that I've, I've written, probably mostly complimentary, but I hope that there are some brave souls who, you know, venture uh, to tell me that I screwed some things up or I missed something. Because that's how we, uh, we all learn. Uh, but they're gonna, they're gonna look at some of the topics that we talked about. They're gonna look at, uh, certainly the, the patents and gender question. Some of the, uh, writings I've had in the so-called cyber law or internet law area. UCI prides itself on being kind of a law and society faculty with expertise. And so I've done a fair amount of that. And there's gonna be a, a number of people talk about patents and society, which um, again, for some reason, seems to have been mostly overlooked. Uh, there are some folks doing it, but not very many of us. And so, uh, so they're going to kind of walk through these different uh, phases that we talked about, what impact they think it's had, what impact it's had on their work. Uh, and as I said, I, I hope they'll give some suggestions for the, the next stage uh, to improve it. But, uh, but they're really coming from uh, all over the country and all over the world. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm just... I'm delighted that uh, Mark and Tony put this together, and I'm really looking forward to what these folks have to say. Well, it is. It's an amazing all-star lineup, and that's a testament to your work and, and your influence, Dan. And, you know, it's been an amazing 15 years for the law school, and, and uh, you know, I think a lot of that was the vision of the founders. There's a lot uh, we owe we owe the founding faculty, and you yourself have had a major impact on the school's trajectory. So thank you for joining us on this special 15th year anniversary celebration podcast for UCI Law Talks. Before we conclude, is there any other topics you wanted to, or words of wisdom you wanted to leave with our listeners? As I said before, you know, take some risks, but never risk quality. You might want to choose a topic that's a little offbeat. You might want to uh, work in an environment that's a little, little bit different, right? but uh, you always do quality lawyering. You always do quality scholarship. Um, and that's not something that I'm willing to take a risk with, and I don't think others should either. I think that's great advice for young academics and law students alike. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for joining us on this special edition of UCI Law Talks. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to UCI Law Talks. For all our latest news, follow UCI Law on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. 